So um, our church has been running for about 10 years, and over the last couple of years, it's grown to such a size that we've actually been able to launch an evening service, which is a great privilege. And it's a great privilege for me because this is the first time I get to proclaim God's word twice in one day. So I'm pretty excited. Um, And I want us to consider a couple of things tonight as we open up the scriptures, because there's been a lot that's been been said over the last couple of years about the future of the church. What's going to make the church viable? Um, For a number of people, persecution of the church is going to render it useless for others where it's going to be left behind and obsolete, a, a relic of the past. And yet something that we see time and time again is that the church that is filled with power is one that is serious about the Scriptures. That's why our church is so serious about the Bible. It's why we hand out Bibles. It's why we encourage you to take them home. It's why we read the Scriptures week in, week out. It's why we preach exegetically, that is verse by verse, because we think the Scriptures hold the power and not our own thoughts. Um, And this is really important because I think this plays out in a number of ways in the life of a Christian. For a number of us, we're not experiencing the power of God because we don't know the Scriptures well enough. We feel a lack of assurance and conviction because we don't know the promises of God. We don't know the gospel, so we always feel convicted not knowing that Jesus actually died for us, that he loves us. And it plays out in many, many other ways. In fact, I, um, I printed off a sheet because I was reading some studies in anticipation for today's sermons about biblical literacy, how well people are knowing their Bibles. And there's been a couple of studies over the last uh, three or four years, one by Ligana, one by Barna Group in America. And this is, uh, this is what they have to say. So it was done in America, but I think it's pretty cross-cultural, especially in the Western world. Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they do not read it. And because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. How bad is it? Researchers tell us that it's worse than most could imagine. Let's get a copy of this. Fewer than half of all adults can name the four Gospels. Many Christians cannot identify more than two or three of the disciples. Fair enough, there's a lot of them. Multiple surveys reveal the problem in far starker terms. According to 82% of Americans... God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. Now, of course, Christians would do far better than this. They did better by 1%. Only 81% of Americans believe, of American Christians believe God helps those who help themselves is a Bible verse. A majority of adults think the Bible teaches that the most important purpose in life is taking care of one's family. I I can understand those. I can understand those distortions. But the next ones are sort of difficult to understand. A Barna poll indicated that 12% of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Another survey of graduating high school seniors revealed that over 50% thought that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. And a considerable number of respondents to one poll indicated that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. Like, if this wasn't so serious, it would be humorous. Right? Now, um, if you're sitting here and you've just become a Christian and you're going, I don't know any of this stuff either, don't worry. This is mainly for those who have been Christians for a number of years who know that the Bible is important, who know that it is the Word of God, but do not read it. And because they do not read it, they do not know it well. And because they do not know it well, they do not know what to expect. 
So how does, how does this play out in the wider, wider culture? I think it's um, telling for this verse today. Now, some of you may have heard of the book The Shack, okay? So it's just been released as a massive movie in America. It's coming to Australian shores uh, in the next couple of weeks and months. And it's become one of the greatest Christian sellers of all time. Just eclipsed over 25 million copies that have now been sold, which puts it in the top 10 Christian books of all time. And uh, the guy who wrote it, William Young, he, he had an affair which caused him to reconsider his ideas of who God was, who he thought God was, and how God could minister to him in the pain. And so he wrote this book, The Shack, to communicate to his young family who he thought God was. There's been a a number of criticisms about The Shack over the year, that it hints at uh, universalism, that all people will eventually be saved regardless or not whether they accept Jesus. Um, He rejects some of the doctrines, but it's always been... Um, it's always been under the guise that the sort of comebacks have been, well, you know, but God can use it to bring people to him. Um, and, and fair enough, God often uses bad doctrine and, and all this kind of stuff to bring people to him. And so it was a real, of real interest to me that William Young just released a new book, Lies We Believe About God. And uh, I'll just read one of the quotes that William Young had from the, the book. Who originated the cross? If God did, then we worship a cosmic abuser who in divine wisdom created a means to torture human beings in their most painful and abhorrent manner. Frankly, it is often this very cruel and monstrous God that the atheist refuses to acknowledge or grant credibility in any sense, and rightly so. Better no God at all than this one. Okay, so that's a pretty marked departure from Christian doctrine over the last 2,000 years. And so the people who are now saying, well, God can use this shack to bring people to him, well, it might be difficult, it might bring people to a God, but not the Christian God, because that's not him. Because what we see revealed in this scripture is why Jesus came to earth, why Jesus came, why God sent him, why Jesus took on flesh. This is the question that it answers. This narrative reveals why Jesus came. Uh, There's been a number of theories over the years. This has been a a recent common one. Another one is that Jesus came to be with us in our suffering, that on the cross he um, primarily would be be able to empathize with us. But I think the scriptures go far deeper than this. It goes far deeper than Jesus being a good example or Jesus being a good friend to us in our suffering. And I think it will reveal this. So before we get into the text, something that we like to do is to pray for each other. I'm going to pray for you, and I'd really appreciate it if you could pray for me. Um, The last two days, basically, I've spent in bed um, sick. I've had flu and um, side-splitting migraine. And um, I think it's because my wife left for Brisbane on Thursday, and my life's just fallen apart in the uh, two days. I was saying saying earlier that um, the house has somehow got so messy in two days of Sarah being away, that I cleaned the whole thing, which I don't think has ever happened. Um, So you can pray for me, both that I uh, receive healing, that I can preach strongly and boldly, and also that my wife would come back really, really quickly. That would be good for for us. So let's let's pray. I'm going to pray for you, and you can pray for me. Father, um, I thank you for the scriptures, and I thank you that we can take them seriously, that the uh, trust 
worthy. They are a two-edged sword that convicts and chops off the bits of us that are not like Jesus. Father, I pray this evening that we would begin to become more like Jesus, that we can not only see an example for us to follow, but someone to be worshipped, someone to be glorified, someone that we can make our entire life about. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit is present and active tonight, that it stirs our affections for you, convicts our hearts, that when they do not desire you. Father, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's, uh, let's take a look at Mark chapter 10. And we'll read, the way we do it is we read a couple of verses and we talk a little bit about it. We read a bit, talk a bit, read a bit, talk a bit, and we go through. So we'll start at Mark 10, 32. And we find Jesus taking his disciples aside. This is what it says. They're on the way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, whilst those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So the context is Jesus has taken the disciples aside. They're on the way to Jerusalem. There's probably a crowd that's following him. He's just um, laid down a beat, beat down about to a rich young man. And what we find is that the crowd's following him. They're amazed at what's going on. And Jesus needs to convey something to the disciples. Okay. He's speaking plainly about what he's coming to do, what he's going to do, why they're going to Jerusalem. And we see this increasing escalation over the weeks and months leading up to the crucifixion that Jesus is anticipating his death more and more. It's not coming as a shock. It's not coming because he got swept up in a political uh, reformation. He's not being taken because of um, crimes that he's committed. No, he knows what's going to happen. Jesus knows what's happening. He knows what's coming next. And he takes his disciples aside so that they get a fuller picture. And the funny thing is that this is not the first time that Jesus has done this. This is something, I think, the second time he's done that. In fact, we read in Mark chapter 8, Jesus saying the same thing. He began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And I love this. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, that you've tried to communicate something to someone so clearly time and time and time again, but there's a block in their head that they just can't wrap their head around what you're saying. And so something comes to pass and they say, well, that's a surprise. Why didn't you tell me about that? I, um, I remember my dad. Now, I, I didn't grow up in Caroline Springs. I grew up in a little place called Hurstbridge. We're famous for being the end of a train line, and that's about it. Okay, and we grew up in three quarters of an acre, which in Caroline Springs terms is roughly three houses worth. Okay, and um, we grew up in this slant. Okay, so the the backyard was sort of flat-ish, and the front yard, which was quite large, was on this massive slant and a big drop. 
And so it was quite a nightmare trying to mow the lawn. We couldn't get gardeners in. They didn't want to do it. And so my dad had this brilliant idea that I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy a tractor. I'm going to buy a hoe kind of thing. I'm going to stick it behind and uh, that will that'll deal with our issues. I'll, I'll never have to worry about this again. Anyway, my mum cautioned my dad saying, Alan, do not do this. Don't do this. This is a bad idea. I forbid you. And uh, something that you should know about my dad, that when my mum forbids something, he's likely to do it within the next 24 hours. So the next day he went out and he bought a tractor and a hoe um, to attach behind the tractor. And the, the thing was that because we didn't, we didn't grow up in suburbia, um, there was an electricity line headed straight to our house. Um, so we didn't have a, a converter that sort of did the whole street. We had individual lines. And something that my mum said to my dad was, look, you, the, the tractor is too tall. It's going to cut the power lines. And dad said, nah, <laughs> she'll be fine. Anyway, so my dad, he, um, he brings the tractor up with the truck and uh, he offloads it and he attaches the hoe behind and he gets her started and he goes to cut some of the lawn and he does a little bit and he heads over to the other side and then we hear this snap and a big bang and the electricity line has been cut and suddenly there's a live wire just flicking around everywhere like a snake and my mum grabs my, um, my younger brother and myself and she brings us inside. She doesn't want us to be electrocuted and... Um, about 10, 15 minutes later, after my dad's called the authorities, um, he comes inside and says, well, I, I didn't expect that to happen. And mum's like, I just spent three weeks telling you not to do this. What did you expect to happen? I think the disciples had the same issue that my dad did, that they were just blinded to what was about to happen. Jesus has explained carefully, plainly, clearly that he's going to go to Jerusalem to be handed over to the chief priests, that he's going to die. What does he say? They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. There's not much wiggle room there. He couldn't possibly mean anything other than mock him and spit him and kill him. He's not talking about a spiritual killing where actually he becomes the king. Okay, But we, um, we find that there's two disciples in particular who may not have listened to Jesus very carefully, James and John. And I like these guys because they're collectively known as the Sons of Thunder. Um, I think I would actually like to go back to biblical times when it comes to nicknames. I'd love to be known as Jimmy of Lightning. Like, just like Peter's the Rock, I could be Jimmy the Lightning. Um, that could be a positive development for me. And so this is what we read in verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And if you're a parent, you know this is the most dangerous request that anyone could ever make. You've got a young kid and they say, I just, I, you have to say whatever, whatever I want, you have to say yes to. That's when you know you're definitely going to say no. Okay, so what, is, what does Jesus say? What do you want me to do for you? He asked. And they replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. Jesus goes on to say, you don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? This sounds like a rapper. Okay. So Jesus has plainly, clearly, carefully explained that he's going to Jerusalem to be handed over. He's going to be mocked and spit on and killed. And the sons of thunder hear that and their automatic reaction is Jesus is going to get the glory. 
Let me sit at the right and the left side of Jesus. Jesus, give me the glory. You're going to be a king. You're going to be great. I want in on what you are going to do. I just can't explain the disciples sometimes. There's lots of times where I say, I, say I, I would have made the same error, but it was just so inconceivable that God himself would take on flesh and then die for his people that the disciples either refused to or could not wrap their head around the fact that Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Son of God, the Son of Man was going to Jerusalem to die. And so James and John refused to believe it and said, Jesus, whatever's going to happen, because I know that at the end you're going to be king, I I want in. There was a common belief around this time that when the Messiah came back, he was going to expel the Romans, he was going to have a military rule, and he was going to rule a physical place. And so the Sons of Thunder, probably named because they liked wrestling and um, arguing, they said, there's a rumble coming, we want in because of the glory. And what, is, what does Jesus say to them? You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Sorry, I skipped ahead. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Jesus is carefully explaining that what awaits the Son of Man, what awaits him in Jerusalem is not uh, this excessive glory. He's not going to take rule of Jerusalem. He's not going to be pronounced as the king. In fact, he's going to die and to suffer on a cross. He says, can you drink the cup I drink of suffering? Can you be baptized into my death? No. No, you can't. They've ignored the warnings that Jesus has given to them, that there will be mocking and spitting and murder. And often we do this as Christians, that we're so filled with ambition that we live as if the only two chapters in the Scriptures are the Gospels and Revelation. We've got Jesus coming, dying, being resurrected, and the new heavens. And we just ignore everything that Paul and Jesus and Peter and the rest of the New Testament writers have to say about suffering for the glory of God. We just ignore it. We live such triumphalistic lives sometimes. John Calvin said it like this. Our Lord enjoins his followers indeed to feel assured of victory and to sing a triumphal song in the midst of death for otherwise they would not have courage to fight valiantly. But it is one thing to advance manfully to the battle in reliance on the reward that God has promised to them and to labor with their whole might for this object. And it is another thing to forget the contest, to turn aside from the enemy, to lose sight of the danger, and to rush forward to a triumph for which they ought to wait to the proper time. Yes, hold on to the assurance of revelations that God himself is coming back to restore everything and make a new heavens and a new earth but do not mistake it that there will be suffering there are so many people i don't know if you you read the newspapers anymore um i I sort of went away from it and have come back after the fake news sagas okay but there has been this consistent theme of warning about christian persecution in the west 
It comes from America, especially with right-wing talk show hosts. It comes from Australia. There's been two articles in the last week, one by um, Andrew Bolt, um, one by Archbishop Davies from Sydney, uh, talking about Christian persecution, about the bullying of Christians, about the sidelining of Christians. And I, I just I find it so hard to take serious, to be honest with you. Not because I don't think Christian persecution exists. I know it does. I know there are people who are losing their lives and losing their homes and being outcast from society to the point where they cannot feed or have water for risk of being abused or assaulted. I know that this happens, and I know that it's happening in record numbers. I just don't think that what Western Christians experience is persecution, dare say. Especially when you consider what the New Testament writers had to go through and what they said about it. Like let's, let's just take a look at Romans 8. Like Romans 38, 39, Christian coffee mug, but we forget what comes first. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am sick and tired of people saying that the church is on its last legs. Why? Because Jesus told us to expect suffering. And throughout the history of the church, real persecution has always led to the future of the church. Brother Andrew, who wrote um, The God Smuggler, which is a phenomenal book, was talking to a um, a pastor, I think in Romania, don't quote me on that though, um, and he asked him, what what effect has the persecution had on the church? He said, it's been our greatest ally. Why is that? Because when someone is persecuted, they have to consider for themselves whether Jesus Christ is worth everything, whether he is who he says he is. And the thing about Christianity is that he always marks up. He always meets the mark. Christians have nothing to suffer from persecution. But I think what often has happened, and I think for most people who are crying foul about Christian persecution in the West, is that their personal preferences are being challenged. And I think For most Christians who are crying foul about persecution, it's because they care more about their personal preferences than they do the gospel. I was just going to put that out there. Why? Because Jesus told us time and time again to expect, expect suffering. What does he say in 2 Corinthians? He says this momentary affliction prepares us for an eternal weight of glory. What does Paul say at the start of 2 Corinthians? Brothers, I did not want you to despair. I do not want you to be unawares of what we have gone through. We despaired of life itself. But what was this to do? This was to show us to depend on the power of God who raised Christ through the dead. Jesus in John 15 tells us, "Is are you greater than your master? No. If they hated me, they will hate you. Brothers, let us not be unaware. Persecution is coming real persecution, right? But let us, not, let us not be like James and John. Let us not be like the people that Calvin's talking about, just 
walking triumphantly. Let us go. Persecution comes. I don't care. Is it going to improve my faith? Is it going to strengthen me? Is it going to cut off the bits of me that are so in love with culture and so in love with my own comfort? Maybe I have to be a bit thinner. Maybe I have to work a bit harder for my faith. But I know that in all these things I am more than conquerors. That's the great thing about Romans 8. It lists all these things. What can separate us from the love of God? Can persecution? No. Can nakedness? No. Can famine? No. No, in fact, in all these things we are more than conquerors. I realize that's a bit of diversion, but I think that's just where the text led us. So we we go on and hear what Jesus has to say. So you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are you going to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now, James and John are very um, ambitious or confident or foolhardy, and they say, we can, of course. Whatever you've got going on, Jesus, we want. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Jesus says, you will experience the suffering, you will experience the death, you will experience being cast out for my name and for my glory, but I, I can't give you the seat at my right hand. Right? Jesus, Jesus, it's not his liberty to give. Those places have already been prepared. Here's the interesting thing. So Jesus has just led this smackdown of James and John. And I don't know if you've ever on Facebook seen someone just had their, their rear handed to them in an argument, right? Just like mouth gaping, no words coming out, hashtag savage, right? It's not really the kind of thing where you go, yeah, give, give me some of that. I, I heard what they said. I want, Jesus, can you smack down me as well? But apparently the apostles and the disciples, they're not listening to what Jesus had to say, clearly, because in verse 41, it says, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. In fact, in the book of Luke, which comments on the same passage, it says, an argument started amongst the disciples as to which one of them would be the greatest. Oh! Jesus must be exasperated. I've told you I'm going to Jerusalem to be mocked and to be spat on and to die and to give my life. James and John say, we want some of that glory. Jesus says, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be death. And then the the rest of the disciples come along and say, we want to be the greatest. Ambition has such a place in the church. There are good things to be ambitious about. We are to be ambitious about the gospel. We are to be ambitious about what what God can do. We are to be ambitious about trusting in God but we are not to be ambitious about ourselves. When we're ambitious for our own good, we cannot serve one another. I, um, I remember my best friend, okay? So I, um, I love cycling, okay? My legs are currently shaved at the moment, right? Which is a weird thing, okay? But I promise it saved me at least two seconds over the course of a 50K ride, which means that it was totally worth it, okay? I love cycling and I've just about been able to convert uh, five or six of my friends to cycling. And I converted my best friend about, um, geez, three, four years ago. Four years ago, I'd say now. Um, and so uh, I, I, I'm quite big for a cyclist, okay? So I, I love cycling, but I'm quite big. 
But it didn't really matter at the start because my friend had this penchant for eating licorice before we rode. And so he'd be traveling up the, the mountains and then vomit up some licorice. And I'd be like, sucked in, I ate rice. Um, and then what happened was that my friend who weighs 60 kilos suddenly started going up the mountains much faster than my 86 kilos could do, right? It's just dynamics. The higher the gradient, the faster uh, the difference is. There's some maths involved. I don't understand it. Maths and I have never been friends. And um, I remember the first time he beat me up uh, King Lake, which is a big mountain out um, near Hurstbridge. About 7Ks. It's a 30-minute climb. And instead of being filled with um, encouragement, filled with such pride at what my friend had been able to accomplish, I just felt rubbish, right? Because I had ambition for myself. I thought I was so good. And then I was confronted with the fact that I wasn't and I couldn't even be glad for my friend, right? When we are filled with ambition about who will be the greatest, we cannot, will not be able to serve one another. We will not be able to do what Jesus has asked us to do. Jesus calls the disciples together. He says, Brothers, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. He's pointing to everything that they would see on a day-to-day basis. Corruption. This incredible ambition. He says, Not so with you. Whoever wants to be great amongst you must be your servant. If you want to be great, then you must serve. In fact, what does Jesus say? Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. If you want to be first in the kingdom of God, will be a slave. That's a hard word. That's a hard word. What is he going to say in verse 45? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Messiah, Son of Man, did not come to claim his royal dignity. He did not come to be crowned on earth. Instead, he was given a crown of thorns. What happened to him? Mocked, abused, spat on, flogged, murdered. To the question of why did Jesus come to earth? Did he come, as William Young insinuates, just because, and he just got swept up in what was happening at the time? Did he come, as some of my friends have intimated, to be with us in our suffering and our brokenness? Well, the answer is yes, well, at least to one of them. Yes, Jesus can empathize with us. God, the, God, the, the scriptures say that, that he understands he was tempted like us. Right? But Jesus came as far more than this. Did he come as a good example to show us how to live and how to die? Yes, of course he did. Did he come as a good friend who could empathize with us in our suffering? Yes, but of course he did. Why did Jesus come? Mark ten forty five says Jesus came as the God-man. To pay a price I could not pay. To pay a ransom that I could not afford. Because the reality is, is that I don't just need a good example. Because I look even in our small crowd tonight, I see there are plenty of godly men and women who I could mold my life around, who I would do well to imitate and to be more like. 
So if I need good examples, then I am well taken care of. And if I just need a good friend who can empathize with me, who can sit me with me in my suffering, then again, there are plenty of people here tonight who can sit me with, with me in my suffering. But there is something that none of you can do, and there's something that I cannot do, and that is to pay the price for my rescue. Right? I am enslaved to sin apart from Jesus Christ. There is no name that can save me. The price is too high. And it's not like Jesus was some kind of spiritual guru who had just accumulated so many coins, right? The price that needed to be paid wasn't monetary. It wasn't emotional. It was spiritual and it required blood. Just in the same way that in Israel they required the blood of an innocent lamb to pay for one's sins, I required the blood of the spotless lamb of Israel. I required the perfect life of Jesus who would come in my place and take my place. That's the good news. Not that Jesus gave us a good example, although he does. Not that Jesus is a good friend, although he is. That he is the God-man who paid a price I could not pay. Man, there's so much on this. There's so much richness about these scriptures. And the thing is, right, so the, the quote we read out by William Young at the start, that if God originated the cross, he's not someone worthy to be worshipped, that it must seem like divine child abuse, the divine God sort of dragging his son to the cross every step of the way. But that's not the story that the, the, that's not the, story that the scriptures paint. Let's just look at Hebrews 12 for a second. And if you're the kind of person who, um, who memorizes Scripture, who wants to know the Scripture well, you would do well to memorize this. I have um, memorized this passage and just been so encouraged by it. It's so good. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. I'm losing my voice. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And this is the, the key bit. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the what? The joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did Jesus come? Did he have to be dragged? No, he came with joy. Why joy? Because children of wrath will become children of righteousness. Because those who were cast out from the kingdom would become intimate sons and daughters. Those who were dead would now be alive all to the glory of God. That's why Jesus came. He didn't have to be dragged to the cross. He went willingly. He anticipated it with great joy. For you and me, I don't know about you, but sometimes, sometimes I feel my sin keenly. But sometimes, sometimes I don't. And sometimes I'm just filled with this guilt. But Jesus, Jesus knew who I was and still went to the cross with joy, knowing that this wretch would be turned into a son of the Most High King. Another way that's said um, in, in 1 John is that Jesus is the propitiation of our sin, right? That's a big word. It's one that you go to Bible college for. Um, here's, here's a great secret, right? You go to Bible college because they teach you big words actually really simple, but by using them, you'll sound really smart, okay? 
Propitiation just means a great exchange. Jesus was the exchange for our sin. I deserved death. The cross that Jesus is headed towards, that's my place. Being mocked and spit upon and cast out and murdered, that's what was reserved for me. But for the Son of God who would come to take my place so that when he received my sin and he received my death, I would receive life. The great paradox of Christianity that by giving my life to Christ, I would first receive real life in the, the beginning, right? That before I become a Christian, I've never actually really lived. I've been dead all these years. So how do we access this? How do we access the Son of God who died for us? How do we access the ransom? Well, it's quite simply we trust in Jesus. And not, not this mediocre trust. I'm not talking about saying a prayer, not even the sinner's prayer. I'm saying there is no other name by which I can be saved except Jesus. There is no one who could pay my debt except Jesus. Without you, Jesus, I am done for. I am destined for eternal separation. And I am placing my entire eternity on you. I don't understand all this. I don't understand what's coming next. But I understand that I need you and will place my trust in you. Friends, that's the great truth of Mark 10. Yes, we have the disciples who can't work out what Jesus is saying. Yes, we have them ignoring the persecution. But the great, great truth is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to give his life as a ransom for many to die in our place. Friends, we're going to invite the band up and we're going to sing to the glory of God. And I encourage you, if you've been convicted, if you have um, had your affection stirred, if you've felt the weight of Scripture on your shoulders, then you can do a couple of things. One, you can cry out to Him in worship. I don't know about you, but sometimes I've got a deaf heart and I have to sing loudly to make it hear. Right? I like singing loudly. I think that's why only Albert will sit next to me now. Right? Um, but if you, if you want someone to talk to, if you don't understand this fully, if you're, if you're working this out, I'm going to just stand to the side. You can come and pray with us. You can come and talk with me. Um, and no one will look because they're all singing their hearts out, making their um, hearts hear what their, their lips are saying, right? I'm just going to pray and then we'll, we'll kick it off. Father, we thank you for the seriousness of Scripture that doesn't engage in mere folly but tells us the truth about ourselves, that you alone can save, that we required a ransom that could not be afforded. No matter how well we live, no matter how much we, afford, we made, this is not something we could do. It required the death of a perfect one. And you sent your son not just as a good example, not just as a good friend, but as the God-man who would set sons and daughters free. Father, I pray that you would convict us of places where we do not follow you and do not worship you. Father, I pray that we would flee from silly, silly conversations about Christian persecution in the West, that we would be able to say, with Paul, whatever comes for the glory of God, for the glory of God, whatever comes, that we will be able to follow Jesus knowing that whatever happens to him will happen to us. But it's worth it because when we follow him, when we know him, when we trust him, we first begin to have real life of ourselves. 
We pray all these things in the name of Jesus.